God has done great things. God will do great things. That's what I said. You probably heard it anyway. But um, not don't hurt to say it again, does it, really? That's that expectancy arise. And um, one of my... It's not a favourite programme, but one thing I see now and again is bangers and cash. I don't know if you've any seen of that. And when, when he's doing the auction, he says, where are we then? Where are we? Where are we? Where are we? 50p? Well, no. And he starts down, and I go to another auction, and he says, where are we then? Where are we then? 16,000? Wow. Boom. And you just stand amazed at the price being offered or ask being asked for that particular car or thing that's being auctioned. And when we're coming to the gospel, we're actually thinking about a very great price that Jesus paid. And it's an astounding price that um, no one can measure. And this morning, we're just entering into a little bit into the gospel of Jesus uh, this morning. Um, I, when I was reading this, I thought, as I was preparing, I just felt like I was mountaineering, you know, like I had a heavy backpack on here and, you know, keep going, keep going until you get something and keep going until you come across, you know, something. We always want something encouraging. We always want something uplifting. We want always something that's going to engage with our spirit and, and give us a very strong emotion. But sometimes that's not always uh, the case. But, yeah, like a mountain. But let's read the passage, shall we? Um, and say, where are we then? Where are we then? Luke? Yeah. But where? 49. You haven't got 49 chapters. Luke 12. Oh, 12 verse 49. Thank you, Iris. Well done. Luke uh, 12 verse 49 to 59. I came to cast fire on the earth. Wow. And would it were already kindled? I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat. And it happens. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before your, the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. 
strong words of Jesus. This is a different Jesus than sometimes is presented. We're seeing Jesus in a totally different light. But what we have to remember is Jesus always faces people up with the truth. And we have no good being a church if we didn't face each other up with the truth. The overall truth, the whole Bible narrative, not just the single Jesus loves you, this I know for the Bible tells me so. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Look upon a little child, pity my simplicity, like the prayers that many parents have taught their children. It's a good thing to teach children to pray, and it's lovely to see it when our young people, our children pray. See them pray. We saw it recently, and the kids came out the front and prayed. Amazing, lovely. But sometimes our prayers for the kids need to be real and on the point. A few weeks ago, I think it around about the time we went away to Chillingly for the camp weekend, um, I was picking strawberries. And um, um, I was picking them, and all of a sudden, uh, as I pulled back the leaves, I saw about 30 unripened strawberries in a the patch there, all on their own. And I thought, what's going on here? I thought, well, maybe a, a mouse. There's no rats in the garden. Maybe a big mouse has put them. And they weren't little strawberries. They about that, that unripened, but there they were, all gathered together in a single place. And uh, I, I think I mentioned it to Margaret over the weekend, and I looked here recently, and all this little pile of strawberries had all gone rotten. They were still there, but they'd all gone rotten. And then this morning, I looked out the window, and I saw the culprit, a squirrel. The squirrel had obviously been gathering up the unripened strawberries and putting them together in one place, but they'd all gone rotten. You see, other places in my garden, I've got little acorn trees coming up, which is where he plants the acorns and the trees come up. But it just made me thought, well, what's he doing? He's getting prepared for the winter, I thought to myself. But what he's put in one place has all gone rotten, but in the other place... It's alive and well. And in recent weeks, we have seen, haven't we, how that it's important for us to lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust does not touch it. Stuff which is eternal, stuff which is real. But in life, we spend so much time on things which are trivial, as Jesus brings out in this passage later on. Things which are trivial. We, we, we seem to know about the things which are trivial, but about what's really needed as far as the kingdom of God is concerned, sometimes we just seem so unconcerned about and just leave it, well, what I know, I know, and what I think, I think, and what I believe, I believe, without pursuing that further, which is what Jesus brought up in the passage to you. You can tell the signs of the times, you can tell the weather, rather, but you cannot tell the signs of the time. So I'm just going to pray. I'm just going to ask that God will just help us to have renewed interest in his word this morning. We'll pay attention to his word, not my word necessarily. That God will give us a revelation and God will give us understanding. Father, we thank you for this amazing privilege we have to stand here with all this freedom, to look into your word and to pray and to just to see what life is about, to see what today is about, what the past is about, what the future is about. 
have a peep into heaven and look into eternity. And we thank you for this opportunity. Amen. The great composer Ludwig van Beethoven used sometimes to play a trick on polite salon audiences, especially when he guessed that they weren't really interested in serious music. He would perform a piece on the piano, one of his own slow movements perhaps, which would be so gentle and beautiful that everyone would be lulled into thinking the world was a soft, cosy place where they could think beautiful thoughts, relax into semi-slumber, which some do on a Sunday morning, but there we go. Then just as the final notes were dying away, Beethoven would bring his whole forearm down with a crash on the keyboard, and he used to laugh at the shock that came across the people. A bit cruel and impolite, perhaps, and of course, in many of his own compositions, Beethoven found less antisocial ways of telling his hearers that the world was full of pain as well as beauty. And I feel as we begin this passage, as we read about, I have come to bring fire on the earth, it's very much like Beethoven bringing his forearm down on the piano. He's saying, sit up and listen. Look at me and listen to me. It seems to be a change there, doesn't it? And the passage opens with an extraordinary but not unexpected admission by Jesus of the mental anguish that he was experiencing. We don't hear a lot about that. As he faced the impending events at Jerusalem, something was weighing heavy in on him. And the road to Calvary, as we know it, was a journey that only he was going to take and that no one else could take. And he was going to make... No one else could take that, and there was no other substitute for this journey that Jesus was making to be accomplished at Jerusalem. Now, the passage, the text tells us he was distressed until it was accomplished. So we see this distress. We don't see it coming out of Jesus, but it's his mental anguish as he faced the road to Calvary. In chapter 951... We read about Jesus, who was setting his fate as a flint, face as a flint to go towards Jerusalem. And that, he set on his purpose, he was set on a course, this course to Calvary at Jerusalem. This is what the gospel is all about. It's why we're here. It's why we've become what we are. It's because of what Jesus has done for us. And we're told that this distress was upon Jesus until it was accomplished. So what was he going to accomplish at Jerusalem? And what do we do with the script about Jesus' sufferings, which in the wider Bible narrative go into great detail? We only have to think about Isaiah 53, and you have a whole chapter over to, given over to the specific sufferings of Jesus. N.T. Wright, a, a theologian, Anglican theologian, talks very much about stuff that has been led out of Anglican services. They will leave out passages on the judgment. They will leave passages out about the suffering of Jesus. And sometimes believers are not faced with the reality of who Jesus is and what he went through for each one of us. And so this morning we have that opportunity just to visit again 
something of my, what is he going to accomplish? And what is this suffering? What does that mean? What do we do with that suffering? Quite recent, I've been, it's been sort of noting in my mind the, the increasing appeal for funds on the televisions. There, you've got donkeys, you've got cats, you've got dogs, you've got children. And these things really tug at your heartstring as they appeal for money. I hate to see those animals like that suffering. It's horrific. It's horrible to see the children suffering. But distress is being used to draw people in, to respond. And you know, when we're faced with what Jesus went through for each one of us, we're drawn in. And there should be a response from us. And no doubt they get thousands of thousands of pounds based on appealing a distress appeal that there is people receive. I'd love to think what would happen if suddenly they put out a, the, uh, a film of Jesus suffering. What would that do? That happened in Herne Bay when uh, we showed the film Mel Gibson, The Crucifixion. Many people came to see that film. And we still wonder, I wonder who was drawn in as they watched the suffering of Jesus. So there's the appeal that it has. And Jesus opens up to his own mental anguish, his distress, until it is accomplished. Does it affect you anyway? Does it affect me Anyway, is, is there an emotional thing going on here? I mean, I've been brought up in church situations where there's been an unhealthy, an unhealthy concentration on the sufferings of Christ where it becomes morbid and it becomes sort of unreal and leaves out the victory and leaves out the ultimate fulfillment of what God was doing through Jesus. We can't stay there, but we have to look. We have to be drawn in, because that is the appeal that God wants. God wants us to be drawn in, what Jesus went through for us. And one of those reasons is that we might see what he went through for us and that he knows all about it. We've had one or two mentions this morning about life's difficulties and us suffering. And it is true as we look at Jesus' suffering, he knows, he understands. He's been there. He knows. That's why he put himself there, in order that he might become the saviour of the people. In the Old Testament, in the book of Lamentations, we read these words. Is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. In this verse, the writer, the prophet, is talking about Jerusalem because God brought punishment on Jerusalem. And, and yet the writer personifies it. He, he, he sort of says, Jerusalem, it looks like a person too. And these words too, these words too prefigure aspects of Jesus' deep agonies where his own rebellious people rejected his beauty, despised his person, and refused his gracious offer of salvation. And we live in that world today where what Jesus has done for us, where what Jesus has done for us is not only 
people just pass by, people refuse and ought to accept. And it's a great privilege to have known the revelation that God has brought to us that Jesus is our saviour and we can come to him and all our sin can be dealt with, every bit of it. So what is the challenge out of this? What do we, what do, we do with the script that talks about Jesus' suffering? We don't write it off. We don't write it out of our worship. We don't write it out of our thinking or our reading. And yet many people do avoid it. I know of a church in Gillingham uh, that I used to go and I knew. And they said, we don't want hymns about the blood of Jesus because they make people squirmish. And yet you're talking about the power in the gospel. The blood needs to be mentioned. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Hallelujah. So don't walk by when we read about Jesus' suffering. Isaiah 53, I've mentioned that, but it's a prophetic declaration in stark detail about how Jesus would suffer according to a specific plan by God in order to restore humanity from its brokenness. There's another story of another composer. While Handel was composing the oratory of the Messiah, one day he was found sobbing uncontrollably. In front of him lay the score open at the page where the words were written, he was despised and rejected by men. We can't walk by. We can't be unmoved by what Jesus went through for each one of us. And we need to visit it. And we need to meditate upon it, not in a morbid way, but to say, if Jesus did this, he did it for me. So if the Bible makes anything clear, it is this fact that the secret of all God's good news to men is centered in Calvary. It was because Christ was to die for sin that God could proclaim good news to everyone. That's what we're doing this morning. This is what this is all about. It's good news. Jesus suffered, but that's good news. Because his suffering completed what God required, a sacrifice for sin. Jesus goes on to talk about family division. This is an admission by Jesus about being the reason for disrupting peace within a family Relation, disrupting relationships as allegiance to him becomes the greater desire of our hearts. In true Judaism, the family was at the heart of their religious activities. The first challenge was to have a son and build a family more and more, a very large family sometimes, and this would raise the family profile and help to be distinguished in community and each member would be encouraged to protect the other and stick together. Such were the ideals of family in Judaism. And Jesus here talks about being divisive. Now, the Romans hated Christianity, and one of those reasons was because it could tear families apart. And they tried to stop it. And here Jesus owns, he puts his hand up, well, actually, I will be the reason why some families do not agree and some families are divided. 
You know, when Jesus called some of his disciples, they sort of walked out on the family business and left them the rest to get on with it. It's a bit, well, you say, mm, yeah, well, what about that? And um, I would be sad if my son did something else apart from electrical work and taking on a business. But if he wanted to do something for Jesus, it wouldn't bother me, whatever, because that's far more important. But in those days, family was a lot. It meant something. And Jesus is talking about dividing families. It's also totally against what the good news message was about. I have come to bring, he will bring peace. And yet Jesus talks about no peace. But we have to see both sides. Ultimately, what Jesus does is for peace. When Mary and Martha, there was an unhealthy tension in their relationship. Jesus caused that unhealthy tension. This is the way it goes. In the story of the prodigal son, the outcome of reconciliation with his father was not so with the older brother. No, he didn't want to know. He's not my brother anymore. This son of yours, he said, he's not my brother, he's your son. That division which Jesus brings. And why? Because people are now showing an allegiance to Jesus. And sometimes it's not easy. Maybe we should ask that question this morning. Is my allegiance to him my objective? And am I really demonstrating it so that it's obvious to others? In context, you may be outnumbered or a lone voice in your family. You may be. But being a Christian within the family may be the most difficult and stressful where others are not Christians. But at all times, Jesus was clear that to follow him was radical and sometimes divisive. In recent Sundays, we've been reminded in Luke that Jesus himself stepped aside from his natural family. He stepped aside from his natural family and declared that he was gathering a new family who had stronger relationships, a family that was spiritual, a family that could offer greater experiences than any natural family could. Are we prepared at times to step aside from our natural families? Are we prepared to step aside from our natural families sometimes and to make that statement, which at times can be costly? My children know that they can't, it's not, worth asking us to do anything when we have a beacon gathering because my beacon family is more important than my natural family. And when auntie says she wants to come and visit me on Sunday morning, no, sorry, auntie, I'm with Jesus then. Come another time because my beacon family is more important. Sometimes we have to demonstrate that, not always, and I'm not criticising those who have sh they're short of time and they can't do things at other time. But sometimes we have to stand in our place. No, meeting with Jesus is far more important than my natural family. Having said that, Jesus is also a peacemaker and a maker of families. Jesus makes families. He brings families together. And that is such a wonderful thing. But for many Muslims, 
for many Muslims, this idea of family being divided is a very cruel and a very difficult thing to cope with. And I just want to read a few verses from this book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, written by a Pakistani Muslim who's now died of cancer. But his journey was a very, very long journey to find Jesus. Islam wasn't asking the questions he was answering, like, what is hope? What about forgiveness? Why do I feel so down every day? Why can't I, in my spirit, find the answer? I can't place a home for my spirit. He eventually found Jesus. It meant coming out of his family. And this foreword, it's called This Book, is dedicated to my parents. Ami and Abba, your undying love for me, even when you feel I have sinned against you, is second only to God's love for his children. I pray you will one day realize his love is truly unconditional, that he has offered forgiveness to us all. On that day, I pray that you would accept his redemption so we might be a family once again. I love you with all my heart. His family was divided, and I think the outcome of the story, his parents did become Christians. I read the book a long time ago, and I can't really remember. There's so many stories out there today. But he's based on embracing the cost of the cross. And that's what Christians are about. Sometimes it's easy, isn't it? Not to enter in to what Jesus has really done for each one of us. Thirdly, Jesus deals with this issue of trivialities and the signs of the times. And Jesus saw that the people seemed to be far more interested in the trivial things of life. The weather seemed to be more important than being able to enter into what God is up to. And when I'm trying to enter into going to sleep at night, and then I'm trying to enter into getting, waking up in the morning, Margaret is avidly reading the weather report to me, what it will be, cloudy or rainy, from the weather app. And I thought, I don't really want to know. I don't really want to know. That's just something between us that goes on. But yeah, we are taken up with those trivialities sometimes, aren't we? But really, Jesus is saying, well, these trivial compared with what's happening around you and compared with what's happening in the future, Peter said, the Apostle Peter said, we should be eagerly waiting for the Lord's return. And last week, Steve told us about that, that we should be dressed, ready for service. One of those parts of life is actually eagerly waiting for the Lord's return. And uh, I hear a lot of Christians, and not really, quite rightly so, they're so eager to see their family, but never mention about seeing Jesus face to face, which is more important. I'm not saying you should do this, but you know, there's a dynamic here that as our love for Jesus grows, we become more interested about seeing him and our family. Jesus is the one we wait for. And each generation must read the signs of the times. 
N.T. Wright, the theologian, says, the great movements of people, governments, nations and policies must react accordingly. If the kingdom of God is to come on earth as it is in heaven, part of the prophetic role of the church is to understand the events of earth and seek to address them with the message of heaven. And that's what we aim to do, isn't it, as the church of the living God. Many things would address the social needs and the debts and the things which we can do something about. One of the other things that we can do is to ask for help and guidance to understand more about what God is doing. There was a couple in the New Testament called Priscilla and Aquila. We read about in Acts who explained the way of God more perfectly to others. And when Jesus talks about you're aware of the trivial things, but you should be, be aware of the things that are around you and they're going to happen in the future. We could ask someone else. We could sit down with an older person and say to them, will you help me understand the way more perfectly? That's being intentional about what God is up to and what he's going to do in the future. So there are those around us who are just willing to explain the way of God more perfectly. You could search the scriptures. And Jesus talked. He said, you you Jews search the scriptures because in them you think you find eternal life, but not actually in the scriptures themselves, but in the one whom the scriptures talk about. He said, you think you find eternal life, but actually the scriptures are talking of me. That's what it's all about. And in Berea, there were a group of men and women who examined the scriptures for themselves daily to be sure that what they heard was true. I wonder what you do when you go home here. Probably a bit like me, really. I go home and probably have another cup of coffee and glass of port and sit down for a minute and just think about what's going on in the morning. But there is a challenge here. Is what we've heard, is the word of God, which is so important to us, is it worth examining and looking at it for ourselves and see what I've said is true and to see how the scriptures can help me. I mean, in our weekly update, Steve talks about reading the passage before and also listening to the sermon afterwards again so that we might be sure what's going on around us. The things of God, the things of Jesus, are the most important things of life. Lastly, Jesus gives a little analogy. And really... uh, it's about sorting things out of court. I know Steve mentioned this, I think, last week. The opportunity to get right with God before God gets right with us because it's our choice. Within the New Testament, there's this phrase, and it says, be reconciled to God. That is such an amazing opportunity that you and I have today. You may not have tomorrow, You may not have the next hour. It is that sure. The scripture says, don't leave it. Don't put it off. Settle with God out of court before you get there. And this analogy is a little bit strange in its way because it talks about paying the last penny. So it could be about debt, but it could be a fine. We don't know. But the inferences from this text is that within confinement, within prison, you're not actually apt to pay off that last penny. So it's an unresolvable situation. Without Jesus, 
our lives are unresolved and we'll be left with that for eternity. Without Jesus, we cannot enter his presence. Without Jesus, we cannot be accepted by God. And the hymn writer got it right in the hymn, Man of Sorrows. It said, in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a saviour. So what is it we've got to resolve? What has Jesus accomplished? How is it that we reckon this out? Be reconciled to God. You know, we will never have to be judged for our sin and the things we've left undone, all the wrongs we've done in our life. You know, you never have to suffer for that. You will never have, God will never pay you back for that. Do you know that? Why? Because Jesus has taken it all. We shall never have to stand before God on account of our wickedness or our sinfulness because Jesus paid the price for it. What the reckoning will be is if we refuse Jesus as our saviour. That's the reckoning, and that is unresolvable. So really the analogy talks about an unresolvable situation that we're facing, but can be resolved right here and now. If we've never been reconciled to God, now is your opportunity. Now is my opportunity. We might be reconciled to God on a basis of our accounting before him, or maybe with someone else, or maybe there's other things we want to be reconciled to. And the gospel helps us towards that. But we have this last passage in Corinthians, which I want to read as I close. And it's an opportunity for us to, as we come to worship, to really think if we come across phrases about the suffering of Jesus, to take hold of that. Because in Hebrews it talks about, consider him who endured such contradiction by sinners against himself. And it goes on to say, lest you become weary. And we do get weary sometimes. Life is difficult sometimes, but the point of this is, is don't avoid the suffering of Jesus because within what we read about the suffering of Jesus, there's life. There's life. Life for our spirit. So, Corinthians says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And here it is, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How amazing is that? How amazing is that? We're never to have to pay a penny for our sins.
but we will have to answer if we've chosen Jesus or we've refused him. Was that the unforgivable sin? An unresolvable situation? That's what we face without Jesus. May God help us to enter and love the gospel of what Jesus has done for us. Thank you, Steve.